About 25 years ago, there was a pastor who arrived at a country church that he began pastoring just after his call. Had a lot of great desires and ambitions for what God would do in his ministry at this little country church. Very small town, church of about 100 people. Small town like maybe you grew up in or wish you grew up in. Um, A lot of love in this community, a lot of people, everyone knew everybody, everyone was in everybody's business, all the stuff that you get in a small town church. But the pastor, right after he got there, was drawn into a controversy that he didn't know was brewing, but had been brewing for a long time. And the conflict in this little country church, in this little small town, centered on a cross, a cross that hung behind the pulpit and behind the front of the church. It was a big wooden cross, backlit cross, so that it kind of shone around the congregation as they worshiped. Um, this cross for decades had hung on the back wall or front wall of this church, and every time the congregation came to worship, that was the centerpiece, and people became, became very attached to that cross, loved that cross. It was a symbol of what Christ did on Calvary for them. And this was time frame back in the late 80s, early 90s, and there was a trend in worship in, worship in churches in the late 80s and early 90s of singing praise choruses. Praise choruses, by the way, aren't found or weren't found at that time in hymnals. And so in order to show these praise choruses to the congregation, we had to pull out that latest technology at that time. Remember the overhead projector? You set one in the front and put this overhead projector there, and then you put a little transparency with songs, the lyrics of the praise songs, and you had to project it on the front wall. And, and there was a, a huge screen in this church that had to be manually lowered and manually raised. And so it wasn't the kind that could just pull down and up in the service. It either had to be down or up. So they would pull it down and they would sing these praise choruses. That's where the problem came in. See, that large screen covered up something, didn't it? And there was a huge, huge backlash. There was a group of people in the church that were very offended because couldn't see the, couldn't see the cross. These people let it be known that the cross of Jesus Christ is what we're here for and that that, that cross is the centerpiece of worship and the centerpiece of our faith. And, and it's even hard to worship if we don't see that cross. And And in not so subtle ways, they even accused and judged people who would put a screen down in front of a cross that maybe you don't even value the cross. And then, as you can imagine, there was a group that was embracing these new praise choruses and said, oh my, we're finding a freshness of expression of faith in these new songs and they're breathing life into our faith like we haven't had in any, any hymn in the hymnal. And how can you not want this kind of energy and life in our service? And in not so subtle ways, they judged and accused the cross people of being idolaters because you've made the an idol out of the cross. The cross isn't what we're supposed to worship. We're supposed to worship Christ. And so how can you do that? And so, so this, this pastor, brand new in this church, walks in to this controversy. And as happens in small town country churches and in suburban churches too, but we're not talking about us, uh, 
phone calls started being made, and people started having meetings, and they were talking, and they were making their own case, and they were building their team of supporters, and they were getting their, getting their case together so that they could bolster their supporters. The pastor called a special meeting. It's what happens in a little country church. And the week before the special meeting, what this pastor did is he asked that one of the trustees in the church to paint the back wall around the cross in a flat white paint. Now, it was already white, so it wasn't a stark contrast or change that anyone would notice. And the meeting came, and the pastor began by asking folks to share their feelings about the cross, about the screen, about worship. As you might imagine, there was no shortage of volunteers lining up at the microphones to say what they needed to be said and to make the case for their position. Some words were cutting. Hearts were judged. Motives were judged. People were accused of things that shouldn't have been accused of. Each side presented their case, the reasons and evidence for supporting their case, and they challenged the other side. After this went on for quite some time, the pastor uh, asked everyone to, to be seated, and he pulled the overhead transparency up, and they lowered the screen. I'm sorry, didn't lower the screen. Pulled the overhead transparency up, and the cross was visible. Remember, they painted the back wall flat white, and he turned the overhead projector on. What he had done earlier that week is made a transparency uh, that actually had the outline of the cross on the transparency, so the 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 overhead projector actually lit up and illuminated the wall around the cross. And people were like, whoa, we can do both. Problem solved. But the pastor knew that wasn't the problem. It wasn't the problem about that cross or the transparency, was it? So what this pastor did is he wrote down on one side of the cross the things he heard the cross people saying. Things like, we want to worship God, and the cross helps us worship. Um, we, the cross is important to us. Worship is important to us. It's what Christ did on that cross that gives us life and hope. And, and for all these years, we've been worshiping with that cross. And the people who were on the praise chorus side, he wrote down on the other side of the cross, so this was all being projected around the cross, Things like from the praise chorus side, he heard arguments like, this helps us worship. This helps us draw closer to God. And then he said, do you guys see? Exact same thing. You've let, you've let a discussion about worship get in the way of what you say you both want to do. And then wrote down other things on the sides of, those, of the cross including some of the things that this pastor thought they needed to be confronted about when they're in their attitudes. And, and it was very quiet until one person from the pro-praise chorus position stood up. And, and they sat like they do in little country churches. You actually take sides, and literally take sides, and looked at the other side and apologized and said, I've judged you and we've judged you. And we don't agree on whether the cross is as important as you see it is, but, but we never should have judged your hearts, and we want to worship. And then someone from the pro-cross side stood up and said basically the same thing. I'm sorry, we're sorry that we actually judged your heart, and we let something like worship 
a debate about worshiping get in the way of what we're really supposed to do together. They learned an important lesson in worshiping that day. But more than that, they learned a lesson about how to, how to maintain unity, how to look at people in the church, even when we disagree, when we disagree about something that we're passionate about, in a way that helps to maintain the unity and focus us on what is truly important in the church. There was recently a blog that I read that this blogger had just sent out a question, what, what do people fight about in churches? And I thought some of these were interesting. Here's a sample of what he got back. This is very recently. Um, one, one person wrote in and said, an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard was an issue in one church. Another church, uh, an argument to decide whether or not the clock should be removed from the worship center. There was a fight over which picture of Jesus should be put in the foyer. Commandment thing didn't come into play at all, I guess. A petition to have all church staff clean shaven. A dispute over whether the worship pastor should have his shoes on during the service. We don't have that one. I have attended church when had the pastor preaching without shoes once, and that was a little interesting. Uh, so these are very minor issues, catalysts for conflict, and we can laugh about those but there are some issues we don't laugh about. There are some issues that are actually, and I, and I say this very carefully, worth um, being in conflict over. Conflict is not always negative, by the way. It's what we do with conflict. If we live our lives avoiding conflict, we don't grow at all. There are some things worth being in conflict over if being in conflict means we're going to engage each other. Leadership issues, preferred directions in ministry, they often blend preferences with doctrine, with convictions, as we've been talking about. A few years ago, a friend of mine from high school called me. She was very troubled by a situation in her church. This was another state church that she and her family had gone to for 20 years. Their kids had learned the faith in this church. And a few weeks prior to her phone call to me, the church council of this church, over the objection of the senior pastor, had voted to allow gay marriages to be performed in the church by the staff in this, in this congregation. And now this church was embroiled, not in a light controversy of whether the pastor should wear shoes or not. Another situation that same year, I received a call from a pastor of a mainline church in Illinois asking if I could assist their congregation as they faced a, a potentially fatal predicament in their congregation. You see, this denomination that the church had belonged to had long ago abandoned not just sound doctrine, but even dogma. This, this, this mainline denomination had, had left the gospel. This congregation had maintained some fidelity to the gospel, and the pastor was, was an evangelical man and trying to hold steady to what the Bible teaches, but the, the denomination had long since left. And the congregation, in trying to figure this out, had a vote on whether they would stay in this denomination, even though the denomination had left what we would call even Orthodox Christianity. Uh, and, and here's what happened. They called a vote, and people came and voted. And the majority of the people in this congregation voted to leave this liberal denomination and be independent, but it wasn't quite the two-thirds majority needed for the vote to pass. So this pastor called me and said, most of the people don't want to be in this denomination, 
but we can't leave because we didn't get the votes needed. Help me. Our church is split over this. And I went and uh, actually I took Alan Miller, one of our one of our own men here in our church went with me and we spent a couple of weekends and more helping this congregation walk through what it means to see unity in the gospel and sharing the gospel with this church. After two weekends and a lot of other work, it is, it is with great, great thanks to God that this church is, is walking a path of gospel fidelity now. They've been in our church for some training, and I still stay in touch with them, and there's still challenges, but they're walking toward unity in the gospel. So I say that. So we have con- conflicts in churches that are light and fluffy, and we can laugh about them. And then there are ones like this that the very core of dogma, the very core of the gospel is actually at stake. That's what we're going to be talking about today. For the past month and a half, we've been exploring the four buckets Preferences, convictions, doctrine, dogma. From the first message in this series, we've been trying to talk about how this impacts our community. So today, the focus is on how how do these four buckets and talking about them impact the way we do life in this community, in the church, and with other believers. Next week, we're going to talk about how this distinguishing these buckets impacts our interaction with the world. So keep sending your questions, by the way. You can do that on the website. We're getting a lot of good questions. We'll even have a panel next week and talk more about this. But today we're going to focus on how the understanding of these levels of doctrine, dogma, doctrine, conviction, and preference, and the shared terminology that we have help us to excel in growing and communicating Christian love among one another. So I'm going to share a handful of practical ways that you can take advantage of this opportunity in your relationship with one another. There are probably seven, six or seven of these, and if you want to take notes, you can. If you just want a copy of my manuscript, just listen and shoot an email to Robin Harms at rharms at efree.org, and she'll send you a, a copy of that. So the first, the first thing we can do in how we can grow when we disagree is we can listen carefully. Listen carefully. James chapter 1, verse 19 says, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Quick to listen. The last thing we do is listen well. It's not an instinctive response for us. In fact, usually as people are talking, we're already formulating our response and what their response is going to be and how we're going to rebut their response after we get it. I mean, we we don't listen well in our culture today. But it's most helpful and it's probably the wisest step we can take when we disagree with someone. When we listen, we learn. When we listen, we learn. Maybe that's one of the reasons why it's so hard, because I might have a deep fear that I might learn something. I might actually learn something that will change my mind or change my perspective on something. And I'm usually so entrenched in my positions that I really don't want to have to change. If I already have my position set on the age of the earth or on whether we should help illegal immigrants or not help illegal immigrants, then listening to someone who has a different position could threaten my view. Our society has, for the most part, stopped listening. We don't listen well. We get in echo chambers where we have people who say the same thing as us and who who bolster our own position instead of listening. Every week, 
I try to hear voices that are outside of even my evangelical circle. I, I go to a website called Religious News Service, and, and I read articles and blogs from people that don't hold the position I hold. Some don't even hold the faith I hold. Not because I agree with them, but because I, I get sharpened by listening to what arguments are that are other than my position. Here's a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer from Life Together reveals why listening is so powerful in the community. He writes, the first service one owes to others in the community involves listening to them. Just as our love for God begins with listening to God's Word, the beginning of love for other Christians is learning to listen to them. Learning to listen to them. A little exercise for you. Sometime this week when you're talking to someone who you disagree with, Keep your mouth closed. Totally. Just listen. And if you say anything, say, tell me more. And just try it. Whether it's your child or your spouse or a boss or a coworker or an employee, someone else in church, and they're in a totally different position than you are, just sit and listen. And don't listen to judge or listen to rebut. Listen to learn. Amazing things happen when we listen. Ties into the next thing we can do, which is love fully. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. The priority we give to one another in the body of Christ the way we care for each other. This is the hallmark of the Christian community. So that story I told you of that church that was divided over whether or not we put a screen down and projected songs on a, on a screen over the cross, that lost this principle that the hallmark of what we do and how we relate is that we love one another. This is seldom as important as when we disagree. It's easy to love me when we agree. It's hard when we disagree. Too often, love is put on hold when we don't see eye to eye. We stop caring about what's best for other people. We get blinded to our own selfishness. And over and over and over again, I see it in marriages. I see it in families. I see it in, in uh, workplaces. I see it in the church. The next thing we can do is understand deeply understand deeply. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 2, fools have no interest in understanding. They only want to air their own opinions. Fools have no interest in understanding. They only want to air their own opinions. I call this perspective taking, understanding deeply, perspective taking. It's tied closely to listening. See, we tend to make assumptions rather than doing the work required to listen and understand why someone is doing what they're doing, what's going on behind the scenes. Let's say a coworker of yours puts on headphones while working at her desk one day. So scenario, you're at work, one of your coworkers in the cubicles or somewhere in office has headphones in her ears. I could assume if I'm working with that person and she has headphones in, that she's not friendly and she doesn't want anyone to talk to her. Could be an assumption. Now, it could be true. 
but, but I, could, I could just assume that. But understanding requires me to be open to other possibilities. Other possibilities of why she might have headphones in her, in her ears while she's working at her desk. She could be under a lot of stress and be focusing on a job to get something done. Maybe her boss has really told her, you got to get this project done. If you don't, you're going to be in trouble. So she has to focus all of her attention on that. So there's a reason why she has her headphones in. She could have received some really bad news last night. She doesn't want to talk to anyone today because she's sure if she talks to anyone, she'll break down crying, won't be able to finish the rest of the work today because of this great weight that's on her shoulders. So she puts these in so that she can have some safety. She might need to focus on finishing a project because she's planning a surprise party for you and other people after work, and she, she has to get this done so that she can celebrate you and your relationship. The point is, the true truth is, I don't know why she has her ear, headphones in until I talk to her and ask her. Understanding deeply is I'm going to do the work of listening and asking and inquiring before I draw, make assumptions and draw judgments. I call assumptions, the, it's a suicide because it's the death of communication. Communication stops as soon as I assume I know why you're doing what you're doing. I don't need to talk to you about it. I assume I know. And I'll act on my assumption rather than doing the work to understand deeply. This is perspective taking. A, a scary part of perspective taking is, it's kind of like what I mentioned earlier, if I, if I stop to take your perspective, my perspective might be at risk. It's kind of like if I listen, I might learn something. If I, if I take your perspective, I might actually I might actually not see things. It feels like I'm letting go of my perspective, which isn't the case at all. Here's a metaphor that I use to illustrate this point, and if you've heard me teach much at all, this might be repetitive, so I'm sorry, but it's worth being repeated. Imagine that two people in our church are standing on either side of this boulder. They're both looking at the very same boulder. As each one verbalizes what he or she sees, they try to have a conversation. And that boulder, by the way, is any issue. Should the church be involved politically or should the church not be involved politically? Let's say that. So two people standing on either side of that boulder, any issue you want, but I'll just use that one. Someone on this side of the boulder is saying, this is what the boulder looks like. And they describe it. And the person on the other side of the very same boulder said, nah, you are so wrong because I'm looking at the boulder. And that is not what this boulder looks like. And, and we go back and forth, don't we? We go back and forth arguing over, you're not seeing the boulder, you're not seeing the boulder, when in fact, you're both seeing different perspectives of the same boulder. And here's the real, the real kicker, there are parts of this boulder neither of you see. So the true truth is, I don't see the whole boulder. From the perspective I have, this is what I'm seeing. And here's what understanding is, and we need to do this all over in the church, friends. Understanding is, I'm going to stop telling you what it looks like from my side of the boulder, and I'm going to walk over to your side of the boulder with your own past, your brokenness, your family of origin issues, with the sin patterns you have, with the dreams you have, the ambitions you have, the personality you have, the experiences you have. I'm going to walk over to your side of the boulder and look at the boulder from where you see it, and I might say, wow. If I had all that stuff, I would see this exactly the same. And we don't see the whole boulder, but I see why you see the boulder that way. 
Doesn't mean I still don't see the boulder from my perspective, but I'm going to understand why you see the boulder that way. So instead of arguing over whether we should focus on overseas missions or local missions, we should seek to understand one another. What, what side of the boulder are you looking at? Because I think we've been called to do both. What's the perspective? The next step we can take is to talk honestly, to talk honestly, and this is really important. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, don't lie to each other for you've stripped off your old sinful nature and all of its habits, its wicked deeds. We're not honest when we avoid the hard, hard conversations that we need to have with one another. We're not being honest when we fail to move into those conversations that are difficult. When we're listening and loving and understanding one another, the culture of our church ought to promote honesty. Honesty sometimes hurts. And I, some, in my own mind, I don't know if it's a dic dictionary definition, but I distinguish between hurting someone and harming them. Um, sometimes with your children or going down a path they shouldn't go, you have to get in the way and it hurts. Hurts not to get your way, doesn't it? It doesn't, but I don't want to give long-term harm. Sometimes when we're talking honestly, it hurts. I want to revive a word that we don't use a lot, but I think it could help us in this area. We're accustomed to what I call cheerleaders and critics in our lives, aren't we? In marriages, family, workplace, cheerleaders and critics. Here's how I define cheerleaders. They're the people that are always for you. They're just in your corner all the time. You could do something pretty horrible and these people are still, you know, you're all right. You just keep going. You're cheerleaders. Thank God we have cheerleaders in our lives, right? People that are just always in our corner. And then there are critics, which is the opposite. People, it doesn't really matter what you do. They're never going to be in your corner. They're just always going to pick at whatever is going on and find what's wrong with that. Cheerleaders and critics. Those are flip sides of the same coin, aren't they? Never, what you do may or may not impact that. Here's the word I want to re revive for us. It's a word, admonish. Admonish. We need to be admonishers in the church. To admonish someone is to care enough to speak firmly to this person about what they may be doing. It might even be a warning. But here's the thing that's different about admonishment from a critic. Unlike criticism, admonition includes goodwill and concern. In other words, when you come and admonish me, there's something in that that helps me to know you actually care about me. You actually want me to be a better man, a better husband, a better father, a better disciple, to understand more of the love of Jesus. Can we, can we admonish one another well? Cheerleaders and critics, yeah. They're good when I need them or not when I don't, and I can, I can find pride in there. But admonition is when we walk with one another and say, I love you and care about you enough to be honest with you. And let's stay in this and talk through this. Several years ago, I conducted a church conflict intervention for a congregation in northern Iowa. As I worked with the staff and leaders, I, I found a familiar theme throughout this congregation and the leadership of how they communicated to each other. They would get into conversations with each other or into meetings with one another, and they would have these conversations, and they would pull away. But the, the church was full of conflict, but they were so nice. 
And I'm like, well, what's going wrong? Because they are, they're very nice people, and they always leave their conversations feeling nice, but, but they don't get along, and they don't like each other, and they don't trust each other. And I told them as we were meeting, I said, here's what I'm seeing. And I asked them about this, and they said they agreed. I said, you guys have conversations or meetings, and you say about 80% of what needs to be said. And then you walk away feeling like we've been honest with each other, we've really done a good job of being authentic, and then you walk away and you never say the last 20%. And that last 20% is probably the 20% that I don't know how to say it, I'm probably going to say it wrong, it might offend someone, I may have to actually ask for forgiveness for the way I do it. It's very uneasy and it's awkward, that last 20%, but we don't say the last 20%. And so I told them, you, you guys have to start saying the last 20%. I'm not, I'm not afraid of you offending each other. We actually have a gospel to clean that up, you know. We have, we have a, a Savior who said he'll help us reconcile if we bump into each other. But you've got to make the mess first or it won't get cleaned up. So, and, and what was cool is this, this church embraced this so much, they told me later, they've started ending all of their meetings and all of their big conversations with one question— have we put the last 20% out there? Every elder meeting, staff meetings, do we need to put the last 20% out there? And they started being honest with one another and caring, and it really, really changed the way that they do their life as a church. Forgive freely is the next step. Forgive freely. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. Sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, instead of doing all that, be kind to each other, be tenderhearted, forgive one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Forgiveness is one of the real keys for us getting this bucket thing that we've been talking about. Because if we're not going to be people of forgiveness, then we're not going to do well in moving between these buckets. Mark Twain said, forgiveness is the fragrance that the violet leaves on the heel that crushed it. Forgiveness is the fragrance that the violet leaves on the heel that crushed it. That's what we ought to be about. As we live out our dogma, doctrine, conviction, and preferences, we're going to bump into each other. We're going, to, we're going to have conflict. We're going to have discussions about this that we might actually, as we're saying that last 20%, hurt one another. I would rather we have that conversation and move into that out of a heart of striving for unity and have to say, wow, I'm really sorry. Will you forgive me for that? than to not have that conversation and to avoid moving into those areas that will help us be the church that God calls us to be in this community. I love Proverbs 19.11 in the NIV. It says it's to a man's glory to overlook an offense. It's to a man's glory to overlook an offense. I am so glad there are people in my life that love and care for me enough just to overlook an offense. To just go to God and say, I just don't think John intended to hurt me like that or meant that. So I'm going to give that to you and we're not going to talk about it. When we do need to talk about it, the Bible tells us what to do there also. Matthew 18, other passages that we, we respectfully and constructively go to one another and say, can we talk? Can we talk? There's something sitting in my heart about you that I don't want to be there. 
And I like to set things up that way. I don't even often say, you know, I feel like you've sinned against me because maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But right now, there's something in my gut that is standing between me and you being a brother and sister in the Lord, and I don't like that, and I want to get it out of the way. Can we talk about it? And then you talk about it, and if you need help, you bring someone else to help you talk about it, and you reach out to a leader in the church so we can help you talk about it. Sometimes, by the way, that doesn't mean you're not doing the work. It doesn't mean you failed. It just means you need help. And there are some situations that we need help with. Do you need to reconcile with someone today? Maybe there's someone, this series we've been talking about has brought things up. Maybe past conversations. Maybe conversations or divisions in your own heart with another believer that go back years. If we're going to really apply these four buckets in our church, we need to do that work of going and saying, hey, I'm sorry, can we talk? I want to reconcile with you. As I wrap up this morning, I'm going to take this, and again, if you want to get a copy of my manuscript, you can just send an email to Robin Harms at rharms at efree.org and get this. But I'm going to share with you a proven method of resolving conflict. This is out of kind of my mediator toolbox, I'll share with you, for for lack of a better term. Um, This this is a method that's been used in negotiating agreements, um, diplomatic talks, to end wars and terrorism in, in the, around the world, marriage mediation, corporate boardrooms. It kind of flows from a book called Getting to Yes by uh, Fisher and Yuri. if you want to read the book. But here's the, the principle of it. For every issue we have, we each have a position. Uh, if there's a, an issue out there, should, should churches be politically active or should churches not be politically active? That's the issue. For every issue, we have a position. And if my position is different than yours, we have a conflict. And and I always hold my position because it's right. I just have never held one because I think it's wrong. This is the right position. And you hold your position because it's right. So we have two positions. The only outcome for a conflict to be resolved at a position level is for one person to feel overwhelmed or or taken advantage of, run over, and one person to lose. It's a win-lose thing. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about interests that are beneath that. So I'm going, to, I'm going to define these terms, and then we're going to come back to this slide, and I'm going to give you some examples about how this works in our bucket discussion, okay? An issue is a question that needs to be answered, a matter to be addressed, a decision to be made in order to reach an agreement and move forward. So any of the issues, doctrinal issues, dogma issues, conviction issues that we've been talking about throughout this series or others um, are, going to, are going to come into play here. A position is the desired outcome or perspective I have on that issue. It's the answer to the question, my perspective on this issue, what's my perspective? What's my position? Where do I stand on this issue. An interest, and this is the most critical thing for us to get, an interest answers the question, why am I holding this position? Why do I feel this way? Interest reflects values, concerns, desires, limitations, fears, prejudices, wounds. And then the last term are common interests, things that we hold together. Go back to the story I told at the beginning. What that pastor did on that transparency was he said, here's the issue. Should we have a screen down in front of the cross or have the cross up on worship? And he put down the interest that each side had, and he showed the common interest that they both wanted to worship. That's in short what we're talking about. 
When I use this exercise, um, you can go to the, other, the next slide now. When I use this in marriages, for example, I will have a husband and wife that are in conflict over something. And maybe one of them wants to go on a cruise for vacation. The other one wants to use that money to remodel the house. Well, there are two different positions. That money can't be used for both going to the cru- on the cruise and remodeling the house. So two different positions. If they resolve that at a position level, one will be a winner and one will be a loser. And that's how a lot of marriages work. Let's be honest. It shouldn't be, but that's how a lot of marriages work. What I do with a couple is I say, all right, if you're the husband and you want to spend the money to remodel the house, I want you to write down all the underlying interests, why you hold that position. And I want you to write down the good and the bad. Don't just write down all the noble ones. Write down the selfish ones. Write down the ones that are about you. Write down the ones that don't take others into consideration. And if the wife is one and want to go on a cruise, write down the good and the bad. Why I want to go on the cruise, why this is the best thing for us to do, and how we should use this money. And so I have these couples write these lists of underlying interests that answer the question, why am I holding this position? And then, we, and then I have them interact on that. This is the real key. If we're going to do these buckets well, our conversations need to be at the interest level, not at a position level. Because if we're having our conversations at a position level, we just keep banging. It's what, it's what our Congress does, isn't it? I mean, politics today. We just keep banging into each other. If we get underneath that and we listen to one another's interests, what are the underlying interests, then some different things can happen. One of the things that can happen is, you know what? I still have a very different position than you have. I still don't see it like you see it. But I know your heart now. I know that you're driven by the same kind of love for God. I know you're driven by the same commitment to want to reach people for Jesus Christ than I am. So even though we stand at different positions, I will stand by you all day long and support you. Or some of your, posi- some of your underlying interests might actually help me to see something different and to move toward you. On our website, if you go to efree.org, under resources, there's a place for small group questions. I've put a small group question list for this sermon that you can take even if you're not using this in a small group. And I've given a model of how to use this in our church to work through some of these issues. So please go to efree.org under resources, small group questions, and download the questions for this sermon, and they'll show you how to walk through all of these issues using this model. The story I told you at the beginning of the message is an example of what's at stake. Friends, if we just go through these four buckets and we just do it so we learn more about how to do doctrine, how to do dogma, and we have wonderful conversations, we really haven't moved the ball downfield. What's at stake is for us to demonstrate that we are one. We are unified in what God calls us to. And we're going to stand together and we're going to converse with one another. We're going to move into some of the hard conversations to see his glory. It was only when that church went deeper that they realized the real issue wasn't about the cross or the screen. The real issue was about the God who we worship. And I want that to be the heart of each of our conversations. So when we don't agree with someone in the church, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Just walking back through them again. I want us to listen carefully. I want us to love fully. I want us to understand deeply. I want us to talk honestly. And I want us to forgive freely. Can we commit to doing that together? Will you stand with me as our worship team comes to lead us?
God, we want to be a church that demonstrates the kind of unity and love and forgiveness and understanding that will, will create not just a superficial kind of a commitment of unity, but a deep unity where we know we love one another we're committed to one another. And then we can have some really hard conversations and help each other on this path and journey of discipleship. We need that, Lord. We need a safe place to be your people. Help us to have conversations that are beneath just position levels that we'll understand why we're holding different positions and as such be a more effective and more powerful tool for you to use in your kingdom-building work. Amen.